Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Everyday Theology Podcast, where we as ordinary pastors connect theological truths to everyday believers. I am joined here by Ben Campbell. Howdy. And Dustin Walters. Good morning, everyone. Well, guys, it's good to see you. Uh, we've got a good topic on hand today. We're talking about the Friel Baptist Catechism. This is question number eight. And what I'll do is I, I'm going to read for you what the question is, and then we'll dive into discussion regarding those answers. The question is, how do we know about God? I love this question so much. Um, how, how do we know about God? One of the things as we jump into the the answers, I guess I guess it'd be appropriate for me to read the answer first that's given in the catechism before we start discussing it. So question, how do we know about God uh, that Matt just read? We know about God through the wonders of creation, Psalm 19, 1 through 4, through his image in which we are made, Genesis 127, and especially through his son, Jesus, John 1, 18. We know about God from the scriptures, the Bible. As we get into this discussion today, I think that's important that this this answer is is rooted in scripture. How do we know about God? Because there's a lot of people um, who have conceptions of the divine or some kind of spiritual belief. Um, but what we are talking about here is theology proper. We're talking about God the maximally greatest being we're talking about uh, the one who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and David. That's the God that we're talking about uh, here this morning, not just some other uh, being and what makes God, God is his complete otherness. There's no other being that can, can compare to him. He's indescribable. So as we get into this discussion this morning on on how do we know about God? I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say about um, the role that general and special revelation have to play in this conversation and what those are. Yeah, so I think there's there's quite a bit of um, precursor explanations that need to go on about this, which we can talk about. And maybe they're kind of given in, in, in the answer, but um, I think it's good to differentiate between general revelation and special revelation just for clarification's sake, but it is a, a portion of which uh, we have in the answer. Typically general revelation just says that, uh, that God has revealed himself through nature and the created order. Um, and basically uh, meaning that uh, Roman, as Romans 1 tells us, that there's no one who is without excuse to say that there is no God because of how God has revealed himself in the world. Um, special revelation, however, is how God has revealed himself through his word, um, specifically the Bible. But ultimately, and we can get into the details and weeds of this after a while, um, but ultimately through the word, um, the Logos, who is who is Jesus, the Christ. And so one of the things off the bat that I think it's important to um, to explain about general and special revelation is that um, general revelation is not salvific in any way. Um, so 
uh, we're not mystics. We're not um, we're not folks who who believe in uh, that objects, inanimate objects, can point us to God. Um, so we don't look at a tree and think, well, somebody somebody made that tree grow. There's got to be a God, and it must be the God of of the Bible, you know, Yahweh. Um, that's that's and and we don't look at nature and and just and automatically um um you know we don't place our faith in nature in any way we don't we don't we aren't given the gift of faith because you know we saw a baby be born or we've um, studied a strand of human dna or anything like that but special revelation is where god in his grace has given us um not only his you know the revelation of who he is um but again the revelation of um how to be become one of his children and um so uh i think i think it's good to kind of flesh that out a little bit and just specifically how um <laughs> forgive my play on words here but how special special revelation is that's good and i think one thing i'll add to that I wish I had said this at the beginning because a, a more simplified answer to the question is how do we know about God? We know about God because he has revealed himself to us. And yes, that's implied within the, the two revelations that we're talking about. But even if we took scripture out of this, we can see just through experience and whether or not a person attributes uh, God's revealing himself to mankind or not, whether or not that's been attributed to him, it is happening. Uh, and, and through, through the various ways that, that we're going to mention. Well, and the thing about revelation, which I always, this always makes me smile when church members are talking or like you, are you talking about the book of revelation? which sometimes they add an S um, it is revelation singular. And no, we're not talking about the book of revelation. We're talking about the way that God has made himself known both through the created order and specifically through his word. You know, I think one of the things I had to do during my undergraduate studies, and I think you guys probably did as well was to write an essay describing the differences or the similarities between general and special revelation. General revelation points us to a divine being, even though it doesn't necessarily point us to the God of Scripture. Uh, so we can look at the complexity of human biology. We can look at, at what happens inside a cell. Um, we can look at uh, biophysics. There are so many fascinating things that are way over my head, but but we can look at the complexity of of even conception and life itself. That has to point to a creator, even though it doesn't necessarily lead to the creator God who made the world and everything in it that we read about in Scripture. So I think the thing that general revelation does is it points us to the God of Scripture. Special revelation comes in and helps us understand and interpret that general data that we're given. So general revelation points us to God. Special revelation steps in there and helps us interpret the data 
And this is an important consideration, not only spiritually for our own lives, but also from an epistemological standpoint. What data counts as knowledge? Prior to the Enlightenment, every everyone in the world would have admitted religious data into the, the spectrum. After the Enlightenment, there began to be doubt and skepticism, and now we're living in a time that we refer to as post-Christian or post-modern, in which um, any kind of religious information is not counted as knowledge, per se, by our friends and neighbors who don't believe in God. So, brothers, what I'm trying to say is there is an important epistemological component of this question as well that is important for not just us to think about but for everyday believers um uh, because in the same way that we can trust the facts of any discipline we can trust general revelation as well as special revelation that tell us about the triune god who is a covenant keeper who desires relationship with us i i'm glad you mentioned uh, this from a, an epistemological standpoint, because um, because this does deal with how we know God. It, I mean, you can you can think about this. This is basically like the a doctrine of knowing God or, or the doctrine of the knowledge of God. And um, one of the things that I think is is not quite celebrated adequately in the Christian church is the reality that we can know God. Um, and so I, I think it's important to for for those listening to understand like the that there is a beauty in understanding the knowability of of the triune God, of the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you look at you look at any other world religion, major world religion, God, their God is abstract. Um, you know, you, you could probably argue a little bit of a difference f- for Judaism. Um, but but for the most part, like, you know, any other world religion is just a nuanced version of a sovereign. And um, but you come here to Christianity, and I mean, I I just automatically my mind automatically goes straight to John one and how in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God and all things were made through him. Um, But then I, I come to verse to verse 14. It's the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory the glory of the one and only son of God, full of grace and truth. And so ultimately, if we want to get down to nitty gritty here, you don't know God through nature. You don't, you don't really know God through experience and reason. You can't reason your way to God. I don't think, Um, you know, like Anselm said, I believe, therefore I understand. Um, Faith comes first, then reason. Um, but if you think about it, um, the knowledge of God comes from Holy Scripture. But the reality is still the same. God is knowable. Um, I, John Frame wrote a wonderful book called The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. 
And he says that theologians often speak of God's incomprehensibility, that he can't be comprehended. And he says incomprehensibility is not inapprehensibility or, for example, unknowability, because incomprehensibility presupposes that God is known. To say that God is incomprehensible is to say that our knowledge is never equivalent to God's own knowledge, that we never know him precisely as he knows himself. Now, while that's true, while we can never know God as he knows himself and never know God fully, Paul says uh, we see through a glass darkly, um, we can still know God. He's not unknowable. Amen. And I, as you were sharing that, Ben, I was immediately reminded of Paul's message there in Acts 17. Um, by the way, I've, I've said before, and I'll say it again, there is a difference in ministering to an Acts chapter 2 culture and pre- preaching the word where they have the Old Testament foundation and an Acts 17 culture, which is pluralistic and um, and and is human-centered and humanistic. Um, and, and I think that Paul in Acts 17, we've talked about that passage many times on our podcast and our blog, but what he does there is he says that you guys are searching for this unknown God, but actually he's not far away from all of us. And that's been one of my favorite apologetic arguments for the Christian faith is that only in Christianity does God come into our brokenness and make himself known. Every other world religion, it is this this rat race to to kind of find your way to God. Um, but so thankfully for us, God reveals himself. And, you know, there's so many things that also come up with this, too. Like, what are the implications of how do we know God for evangelism, for the public preaching of the word, for the work of the Holy Spirit in places where there's no Bible translation? There's, these kind of questions are important. But the fact that God can be known, as Ben pointed out, is remarkably beautiful, and it compels us to worship him Um that he wants to be known. And not only does he want to be known, but he covets the worship of his people, um, which reminds me of the commandment, you know, I'm a jealous God. I'll have no others before me. He, he, he yearns for relationship with broken creatures, yet creatures that he loves and creatures whom he sent his son to die for. You know, and one thing I want to say about it is because there's a a thin edge that kind of has to be to be walked a line that needs to be walked in terms of revelation, because especially when it comes to general revelation, when we think about it, one of the uh, points that that Wayne Grudem makes in his uh, systematic theology text on it's on the necessity of scripture is the chapter it's chapter seven. But within that, he makes a point that the Bible is not, uh, is not necessary for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. And within that, he discusses the fact that yes, we, we have God's word as a, as the primary source of knowing about God, but we are also able to see supporting evidence about who God is, about the laws that he has put in place 
through what he has generally revealed to all people through creation. And, and that creation extends beyond just the trees and the deer and, and all of those sorts of things. It extends beyond that to human beings as the creation of God made in his image, because we carry the, the moral law within us that God has established. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that too, Ben, uh, uh, Matt, because I, I, um, there, there are so many different quote proofs that have been given for the existence of God, you know, thinking about Thomas Aquinas. Um, and one of the ones from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that has resonated with me is the moral argument for the existence of God, so that we're not only, um, rational creatures but we're also relational creatures and there is a sense that we all have uh we know the difference in right and wrong both of you have children and your children may sometimes pretend like they don't know but they know when they do wrong um and there's different ways that they express that whether it's you know they're they're trying to hide or they're you know there are different ways that they would behave but god has given us a moral compass and in that, the the moral argument for the existence of God, you know, some people would say, well, that's not as strong as like the other ones, the other proofs that Aquinas might list, like is the teleological argument or the cosmological argument. And you guys can Google what those arguments are if you want to and you're listening. But, you know, um, I think that Matt makes a good point that we have not only the general revelation in the world, scientific data, biology, physics, these different things that show us that there is a creator, but we also um, have a sense within our human person, which I think goes to Leroy Fourlines, that this is part of the whole personality where uh, it meets the needs of the mind, the heart, and the will. Well, Scripture tells us uh, that God has written his law on our hearts and he's given us eternity in our hearts. And so what that what that means not is that we automatically know the law backward and forward, but that we have a sense of, again, Dustin, right and wrong morality. Like, it's funny to me. It's really humorous that some people will like try to subjectify morality. You can't do that. And I, I always like like to say, like, if someone's subjectifying morality, then go kick them in the shin and tell them you think it's okay to do that. See how they like that. You know what I mean? Because they're not gonna like it. And they you automatically know like that hurts and it's wrong to do that. You know, go to C.S. Lewis actually in mere Christianity says the same thing, go do something unfair to someone and claim that, that you think it's fair, um, you know, or you think it's okay. Um, the, the way he says it is he says, um, someone can treat you unfairly and it be okay. But the moment you treat them the same way, he says something like to the effect of they will scream unfairness before you can say Jack Robinson. And, and the, the point Lewis is making here is that if there is such a thing as a, a universal right and wrong, 
then there's got to be a universal moral lawgiver. And it has to be so it doesn't it doesn't exist within the human person. It has to be something that is outside of the human person. And so so morality, whether people like it or not, is a strong argument uh, for how we can see God and how we can know God. Um, I do want to make a point, Dustin. I think it's important to 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 talk specifically about the image of God in man, because number one, you mentioned it. But number two, uh, you know, that's that's actually a part of the answer in uh, the catechism about how um, we know God because of how we have been made in his image and how um, and that's part of what I think the scriptures mean when they say that God has written his law on our hearts. God has written his law in his hearts and Christians are called to proclaim the gospel to all creatures, uh, to make disciples, um, uh, to teach them about Jesus and to, to describe his ways and, uh, to model that discipleship. What does it look like? How does this conversation on how do we know God, how does this come into evangelism and missions? Well, I think this is where oftentimes the conversation has to begin because when speaking of evangelism and apologetics, this is the baseline. How how do we know about God? That, that's the, the first question that needs to be answered. And then oftentimes a person is going to need to reckon with the fact, okay, there are multiple I'm using air quotes for our podcast listeners who can't see. There are multiple gods out there. And so you have to determine, A, if there is a supreme being in the universe. Now you it's you have to determine, okay, so if that's the case, then which one is it? And because God has revealed himself to us, there are good uh, argumentative measures to point to the created order, to point to humankind, to point to moral law that's been placed within us, to point back to the word of God and say, the word of God supports reality. I I think one, one of the things that is often skipped over is people will look at reality and they look at some scripture and say, well, this, this is, doesn't support the life that I live, but, they, they fail to look at the the places of the Bible that describe reality. In other words, point to the book of Job, point to Ecclesiastes, point to the Psalms, point to the Proverbs, and say the word of God that has been revealed to the authors of it, and all of Scripture points back to Jesus Christ. And when we when we have a good understanding of that, I think it's really helpful. When talking about evangelism, though, I, I think one thing, one question I want to ask you, brothers, that that is a question that I have had. Certainly, I'm sure you guys have had, because Christianity is described in some by some naysayers as um, some an exclusive club, if you will, and so they would point to a remote. A tribe, let's say in Africa or South America, those are usually the go-tos. And they'll say, okay, so 
if if Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, what about those people who have never heard the name of Jesus? Are, are those people condemned to hell? You know that they've shouldn't they be innocent because they've never had the the opportunity to be saved? What? How would the the two of you answer that question? I know my answer, but I want to hear yours. I think there there's two aspects of this question that one is the pastoral question um, where you want to be an active listener to active listener to the person who's asking you this um, and get to know like what's behind that. What, why, what are they thinking? You know um, so there, I think there's the pastoral kind of counseling question where you are being an empathetic and active listener but then more specifically biblically and theologically the aspect not that the two are are you know in a dichotomy but just to help think about this how we relate to people and and what we say um matters so i believe that god in his kindness will do whatever is necessary to make himself known to all people as a result of his common grace that he has extended to all creation everyone believers unbelievers alike so what about the person in a remote village who never hears the name of jesus are they are they condemned to hell not immediately i believe that god will do whatever he has to do to reveal himself to to those people ideally the normative means for reaching people is the proclamation of the gospel the the hearing of the word you know results in salvation but matt's question is very good and very challenging uh, what about those people who don't have the word in their language who don't have the gospel who don't have a sermon who don't have um, the message of jesus of faith and repentance and trusting in him and i would just say uh, the short there's not an easy answer to that matt i think it's an excellent question um, but I would say, one, we're all condemned before God. We're all guilty um, unless we put our faith in Jesus Christ and accept his imputed righteousness uh, for our salvation. We're all guilty. We're all condemned to die. But I also believe um, that there are means that God will use uh, that maybe are not normative to reach those people in those villages. My point is to say God is not unjust in his dealings with those people who don't yet have the Bible or a church or a sermon, or they've never heard anybody tell them about Jesus. Um, this can get into some really strange stuff. Uh, in those kind of areas, I think that, um, you know, God could use something like a dream to at least open a person's heart up. Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to result in saving faith and discipleship. Um and we have to be careful about this because there are people who, in our time, in our context in America, are hearing from God things that are contrary to what he's already revealed. And that's a problem. But I think in his kindness, his grace, and his compassion toward those people in that village, God's going to do what he needs to do to reveal this, reveal himself to those people. And I think there's also responsibility on the church, whether it's in participating in Bible translation or in sending missionaries to those unreached peoples. That's good. And before we, before I swing over to, to Ben to get his answer to the question, 
initially when you were describing, you know, the the peculiar ways that the Lord might reveal himself to people without any sort of preached gospel or uh, copy of the word of God. Uh, initially, I was going to say, OK, what are some of those means and methods? But the the issue is. If someone who is a missionary never makes it to that village, they never hear the story of of how that person may have had God re- revealed to themselves. So it, it, you're right that it, it kind of open, does open a can of words, but worms. But I was really glad that you highlighted the fact that no one is innocent. That's the that is the the reality is that we've all been marked by. Uh, sin and we're all guilty before a holy God. Ben, what would you have to say regarding this uh, this age-old question? Well, one of the things that I thought of, one of the first things I thought of was uh, what Dustin mentioned in Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. I mean, Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans that if we're guilty of one law, breaking one law, we're guilty of breaking all of them. And so it seems like from it just seems from the the onset that to say that all are guilty and all are um, like everyone is responsible for themselves spiritually, it seems unloving to say something like that. Um, but I, I think there's a couple of observations here um that that are that are important. At the risk of sounding unloving, <laughs> um, you know, I I I, I truly believe that everyone individually is responsible for their 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 standing before God. Um, because um, you know, we, we can't we can't be responsible for anyone else but ourselves. Um, so all of us, regardless of where we live, regardless of what we do, regardless of who we are, um, are dead in trespasses and sins. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. That means we are born separated from God. It means we're born sinners and we are born um you know, in a way that God, in one sense or another, despises us because of our sin. Um, again, Romans 1 tells us that everyone is without excuse to say that there is no God because he has revealed himself to us. Um, but, like, I mean, th- there's there's just so many complications with this question. Um, you know, what, what about you know, the man in the third world country who's never heard the gospel, who's never even heard the name Jesus. Um, <laughs> funny story. My dad, my dad uh, told me one time that he wouldn't, he wouldn't have believed anyone else saying this 
but he believed it because it was Mr. Fourlines saying it. But he he has heard he said Mr. Fourlines has told accounts where God has revealed Himself to um, Muslims in third world countries um, in dreams. Um, now I I don't believe that God would reveal Himself in a dream to someone who has direct access to the Bible. Um, and maybe we can talk about that on a future episode, um, the ways in which God reveals himself, but, or, um, you know, the means through which he does it. Um, but, you know, who is to say that in sub-Sahara Africa or, you know, in, in Iraq or Iran where, where there's just, there's no gospel, there's moral upheaval, um, to say that God couldn't reveal himself to specific people. Um, so, so there is that aspect to it. Um, because ultimately if we're thinking about this, um, you know, we're not saved unless we, we hear the gospel faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, but on another hand, on another element to this is, is what comes before Romans 10, 17, that verse I just quoted. And that is how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace. How shall they hear without a preacher? Paul says in Romans 10. How shall anybody hear without a preacher? And so I think we often want to kind of peg, you know, people with a question, well, if God loves everybody, why, you know, what about that person who, you know, is, you know, in a third world country, can't hear the gospel, well, then we ought to be taking it to them. Then we ought to be the ones who are saying, you know what, I will give up my life and I will sacrifice my comforts and my, my, you know, accommodations here in the U.S. And I will go to sub-Saharan Africa, risk my life for the, for the spread and the advancement of the kingdom of God. You know, that's the problem. I think with this is everybody and, you know, and and probably even in my own heart, you know, I'm just not real comfortable with the idea of going overseas. Um, but the reality is God uses agents like you and me to spread the gospel. And if we're not doing our part in evangelism and in missions, um, you know, I'm afraid that we may be held accountable for things that we don't even truly think about. Hmm. Sins of omission, sins of commission, things we do, things we don't do. One of the things that Ben said early on in his conversation, and I appreciate your reflection, and and I would really sum, summarize what Ben has just been saying the last few minutes here as there is a difference in what, and Ben, you correct me if I'm uh, misinterpreting you here, there is a difference in what God does as a normative means and then what what God does sometimes as an extraordinary means. So the normative means of persons coming into saving faith is hearing the gospel about, about our sin and condemnation before God and Christ's imputed righteousness. That's the normative means. But there are means that God may use. Um, you guys mentioned dreams and different things. And I, I did want to go back and and comment on one aspect of something Ben said early on uh, is the relationship of the God of covenant and the God fearers of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament uh, and sometimes in the New Testament, we read about these people who are called God fearers. 
they were seeking after God. They were searching for God. And in those moments, God in his kindness made himself known to them in ways that they could understand in their language and their cognitive abilities, different things like that. Well, so that was Act 17, right? Yeah, absolutely. The God-fearers. So there is a difference in a person who's, to go back to Matt's question, who's in a remote village, who's not even seeking God, and one who is looking after the God of covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So not an easy question and an important question that we need to think about. As we bring this back to kind of where we started today, we're asking ourselves the question, how do we know about God? And we just want to remind our listeners that it is through creation. We, we look at so many beautiful things in our created world, um, even, even things that we may not always think of as beautiful, even the brokenness and the pain and the suffering that we go through in this life point us to the creator. But we are indebted to God. We are grateful to God today that he doesn't just reveal himself through the created order, through um, the structure of the solar system, through human cell structure. But God makes himself known through his word, which we have been given access to these ancient words. And it is our prayer that the ancient words of scripture will impart life and hope and meaning to you as you think about the most important reality, the ultimate reality, and that is knowing God. If you feel today, the listener, that you are far from God, that you you can never know Him, or maybe you know God, but you've been struggling in your faith, um, I just want to remind you and encourage you of who it is that you worship. You know God as he's revealed himself in creation, but also through his word. And our hope here at Everyday Theology is that you'll take the truths of God's word and and on your best days, on your worst days, that you'll be able to remember and reflect that your faith isn't just an emotion, but you know God because he is ultimate reality as he's revealed himself. Yeah, and I want to I want to just close with um something here that I think we haven't we haven't necessarily missed, but I think one of the things we've not mentioned a lot, um, one of the beauties of Christianity is that God has not only revealed himself through creation and through his word, but God has ultimately revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, he didn't just reveal himself through human authorship he became one of us so that we could know him um and 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 the thing about it i mean you think about it john 1 14 the word became flesh so that we could behold his glory um you think about this in the old testament moses on sinai getting uh, receiving the you know the ten words the decalogue the and he he begs God show me your glory and uh, God says no no man can see me and live but if you will turn and put your face in the cleft of the rock I will show you my backside and um, and. Moses, even then coming down off the mountain, uh, the scripture says he had a glow about him. But you know what? 
just as Israel held the serpent up in the wilderness and was only able to have salvation as they looked to the serpent, so shall we have salvation if we will look to the one who was raised up on a cross for our justification. That's good. That's a good word. Well, brothers, I appreciate the conversation. Uh, to our listeners, we pray that these truths uh, have brightened your day, that they've impacted uh, how you feel about God and uh, give you a better understanding about how he reveals himself to us. Join us next Friday in our next episode.